So last time we were together, we, we began a study of 2 Corinthians, and we, we really just looked at the first two verses, and we saw the introduction there. And, and verses, really verse 3 through 11, uh, make up a benediction. A benediction is a blessing. We usually think of benedictions as at the end, but Paul begins his letter. Usually he began his letters with words of thanksgiving for his recipients, but here he is starting with a praise to God, a benediction. And the theme is comfort. I'm going to go ahead and read the uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 11, and you'll see the theme coming through loud and clear. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. But whether we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or whether we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is working in your perseverance in the same sufferings which we also suffer." And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even to live. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not have confidence in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who rescued us from so great a peril of death and will rescue us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet rescue us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers on our behalf so that thanks may be given on our behalf by many persons for the gracious gift bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Well, we started, we ended our time last week by talking about trials and why does God allow trials in our lives. And I, I started asking you for various reasons that you're aware of as why to, uh, God allows trials, and four of them were mentioned. We, we, someone had mentioned that trials test the validity of our, our faith. So sometimes when you go through a trial, you're able to say, wow. Uh, I really do trust in God, and that's an encouragement to you. It, it, it tests your faith, and you come out uh, having more hope and confidence in Christ and in God. Um, secondly, we saw that trials strengthen our spiritual character. So we mentioned Romans 5, verse 3, that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. So you grow in your character when you experience trials. A third benefit or reason why God allows suffering is trials keep us humble and dependent upon God. And we mentioned 2 Corinthians 12, 7, um, which says that um, Paul was talking about his thorn in his flesh, which was given to him to keep him from exalting himself. And then someone also mentioned so that we could comfort others, which we'll get to. That's the kind of the last reason because that's going to go right into, but I have a, several more reasons why we experience trials, 
What are some other reasons that you can think of as to why we experience trials in this present age? Why does God allow those whom he loves to experience suffering? Yes. Okay, it's true. Um, trials can be exciting. Um, uh, that's a word that sometimes my wife uses when we're going through a trial. She says, isn't this exciting? I don't know, it's not the word I would have chosen. Um, but uh, she says, because God's going to somehow receive glory through this, and we don't know how. And so when we think about that, um, we see that God's compassion is revealed, his He's glorified in situations that are even difficult. 1 Peter 4.13 um, might be the, the passage you're thinking of, Hague. It says, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. The psalmist also cried out, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. They will laud you. Isaiah 49, verses, verse 13 says, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joy, joyful shouting, O mountains, for Yahweh has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his, on, on his afflicted. The reality is, is that God is glorified, and we see his goodness, but sometimes um, we see it shine even brighter against the backdrop of a dark time. And so uh, much, many of the praise psalms, many of the, the shouts for, of exaltation to God are after deliverance from a tumultuous or difficult time. So trials help us to see God glorified. What's another reason why? Yes. Yeah. Trials allow us to really have a hunger for heaven. They give us a heavenly hope. Romans 5 verse 3 says... And not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that afflictions bring about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope, and hope does not put to shame. Um, There's there's an interesting um, uh, word study that you can do in Scripture, and it's on the word hope. We use the word hope in our own culture differently than the Bible uses the word hope. Um, when, when we use the word hope, it's very tentative. It's like, you know, uh, maybe sometimes without reason. A student walks into class and says, I hope I get an A. And what he really means is, you know, it's my desire that I can get what I don't deserve, that I, that I, I didn't study, I hope, you know. And so, or, or you know, um, I, I hope he calls me back or something like that. There's a lot of doubt in that, right? Um, and if he hasn't called you back, you know there's a lot of doubt in that. So, but when we think about uh, hope in Scripture, you find this word. It's fascinating. You can do a study all throughout Scripture. We have this hope, firm and secure, an anchor for the soul. When we have hope in Scripture and it's related to Christ, there's surety. There's not doubt. It's used differently. The word can be defined with more surety than the way we use it in English. Um, uh, I remember um, when uh, when we lived in Africa, uh, there was always the threat of that the country could come unglued, um, and uh, and so uh, I I always kept extra fuel 
uh, outside in a shed. I had a route planned uh, where my four-wheel drive could get us out of the country without a border post two hours away, where I could get out without having... Just if, 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 if war broke out or the country came unglued... And I remember I was in South Africa one time, and there was, there was a rumor in, in South Africa uh, at various times, especially when Mandela was around, that when the day Mandela died, they would kill all the white people. That's what uh, a lot of the black population would say. In fact, even just um, in the past couple of months, there was a rally of 70,000 people in South Africa who were shouting and singing a song where the words are, kill the boar, kill the white man. So, so, and there are white farmers who are being killed on a regular basis still in South Africa. So when you think about your world, you know, mob violence and this sort of thing, it's just one of the things. So I, I remember I, I um, uh, went to my father-in-law who lives in Johannesburg, and uh, I said to him, I said, Dad, you know, I've got my fuel. I've got my route. What's your exit plan? You know, what, what, what's your, if, if the country comes unglued, are you going to go to Swaziland? Are you going to try and get up to Zimbabwe? It's a six-hour drive. How are you going to get out? And he looks at me and he says, straight to heaven, my boy. <laughs> Man. Um, and that's something I saw continuously from, uh, from, from those Africans, white or black, uh, was this, this attitude, this hope for heaven. They understood what suffering was like. They... They, they didn't really understand what complacency was like. Where here, if your kids are in the right school, if you live in the right neighborhood, you have the right job, you don't really need God. There was a desperation. People were saying, we need security, we need hope. And so they were looking for that. And when they found it, then there was an even a greater long for heaven because they saw the corruption of this world. Um, trials bring us heavenly hope. What's another reason? Yes. Humility. Yep. Trials keep us humble. We saw that last time. And, um, and we saw that with uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, with Paul. He actually says, it says that the thorn of the flesh was given for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. He saw self-exaltation as something he needed to avoid, and he recognized his trial as God's means to prevent him from exalting himself. Um, let me just mention a, a few others. Trials wean us from the world. Um, uh, in John 6, 5 through 9, it says, Therefore Jesus, lifting his eyes and seeing the large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where should we buy bread so that these people may eat? And this he was saying to test them, for he knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone receives a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? The text tells us one of the reasons why Jesus asked his disciples, and, and, and that he asked them knowing what he was going to do. And they're thinking of it from a worldly human perspective. But when Christ works, he doesn't think about it from a a worldly point of view or perspective. Um, trials not only wean us from the world, but they teach us obedience. Sometimes we go through trials because we have been disobedient and God wants to see our dependence on him and he uses trials as a means of discipline. 
Hebrews 12.5, And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom he loves, he disciplines and flogs every son whom he receives. Pretty harsh language there. Um, but sometimes trials can be discipline. Um, Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So God may use trials to teach us obedience. Um, Also to examine our priorities and to see what we really love. Where do our affections lie? Romans 5.3, and not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So we, we, where is our hope? And that, that also ties in and overlaps. A lot of these overlap with the hope for heaven. Um, also, trials allow us to witness to others. They enable us, they give us an opportunity to earn the right to choose the topic of conversation. So uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness so that power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, they are then I am strong. And there's just something about going through a trial as a Christian that should invoke the opportunities to share more about Christ's goodness. Because people should be coming to you and saying, how are you dealing with this? How, are you get- how is it that you seem to be so much at peace with all the, the, the torrential downpour around you? Just to use one illustration. Um, but h- how is it that you're not panicking? And it's an opportunity for you to say, because... My life is not my own. I've already, I've already given my life to Christ. Yes, I've been robbed, but I didn't own anything anyways. You can't steal from a dead person, and I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, yes, I have been maligned or spoken poorly of, but my life is not my own. And, so, and, and I trust in my Father who cares about me and who's allowed this to happen, who has ordained it for his glory and his good purposes. And, and I don't want myself to be above all else. I want his name to be above all else. I want to be seen as less and he he as greater. So it should open up those opportunities. But finally, we think of this, trials enable us to comfort others in their trials. We see this comforting. Um, Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus told Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you all uh, sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed earnestly for you that your faith might not fail, and that and you, once you have returned, strengthen your brothers. So what we learn is that part of the reason why Christ allowed Peter to be sifted like wheat, which was not a very pleasant experience, you just picture thrashing wheat and pounding on it, and then throwing it up in the air and letting the chaff go away. And that's an illustration. Hey, Peter, I'm going to let Satan do this to your life. Here's why. I want you to endure it and make it through it so that you could encourage your brothers. It, it, he, he told them, he told Peter that before it even happened. Once you have returned, strengthen your brothers. So trials enable us to comfort others. And 
I think that there's something else there too. And what I want to get at this morning as we look at verses 3 through 11 a little bit more with a little bit more depth is this idea that the lessons we learn from verses 3 through 11 of 2 Corinthians 1 should give you a greater appreciation for the nearness of God, for the fact that he is close to those who are his own. I, I think about uh, a child who's... Who's the closest person to a child? His, his parents. Typically his mother. Why? Because she comforts him the most. When he's in the most needy state of his life or she is, has a, is, is, is the most is sick or is hurt or injured, who's there? And so there is this affection that grows and what I want to try to do this morning is take a look at five lessons from First Second Corinthians 1 verses 3 through 11 that will give you a greater appreciation for the nearness of God so that you feel closer to him and so that you, you, you appreciate his care for you. So the first lesson we learn is the call of comfort. The call of comfort, verses 3 and 4, or 3 in the beginning of 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. God should be praised. That is the call of comfort. The call is a call to praise him. The very first word in verse 3 is blessed. Uh, We get the word eulogy from this word. It literally means means praiseworthy or to speak worthy of or to speak in a worthy manner about. It's like the word hallelujah or hosanna in, in that it should, should draw our attention to giving praise to God. The same word is actually used by the high priest who questioned Jesus in Mark 14, 61, who said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? That is the son of God, the son of the one who deserves to be praised, the one who is blessed. Um, we use the word and we, it sounds like we're, 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 we're giving some sort of blessing to him. Uh, we're giving some sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, gift to him. But in, re- in reality, this word is all about lifting up his name because he's worthy, giving him what's due him. Um, Deuteronomy 32.4 proclaims, Our God is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So if it's true, and it is true, that God is holy and perfect and just and faithful and upright, but he also is a God who comforts. He is the God of all comfort. Um, Verse 3 calls him the father of mercies because all mercy is related to him. He is the God of all comfort, and the word all there is significant because there is no comfort that is not related to him. Any comfort that you have received from someone else is secondary because the primary comfort comes from God and God enables and equips others to comfort you. So there is no comfort that's not related to God. He is the father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And that word comfort, which is found 10 times in these verses, nine times from verses three to seven, that word is parakalase, We get the word paraclete from it, from John 14. The Holy Spirit is our helper. He's our advocate. He's our encourager. He's our comforter. All those four words, those are are 
words that, that all help give us a better understanding of what this word means. The word means encouragement or really to call to, some, call to someone to help, to call to one's aid. You think about um, any compassion you've experienced in this world and encouragement where you, you have felt alone, but then all of a sudden somebody came alongside you and you didn't feel alone and you felt strengthened. Um, it's only because God has enabled them, empowered them, and equipped them to do what he alone does. He is the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And for that, he deserves our praise. I just, I just want to point out that the very, you know, Paul gives a benediction at the very beginning, praise the God of all comfort. Blessed be his name. He moves on to a second lesson that should give us a greater appreciation for his nearness. Not only do we have the call, which we should obey and just praise God for the fact that he comforts, but also there's the consequence of comfort, the consequence of comfort. Take a look again at verse 4, and and verse 4 says, "...who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort." with which we ourselves are comforted by God. When I say the consequence of comfort, I'm talking about a stewardship or result for receiving comfort. When you receive comfort from God, consequentially, or as a result of that, you should be comforting others. You need to realize that anytime you're comforted, it is for the express purpose of passing that along to others. Notice the purpose clause in verse 4, so that we will be able to comfort. He comforts us so that we are able to comfort. We will be able to comfort. And Paul knew affliction. There's... When we look at this letter of 2 Corinthians, we'll see there's no more personal letter. Notice the personal pronouns, we, are, um, throughout this passage. And he talks about, he gives us details that we don't find in other letters. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 27, you don't need to turn there, but I'll read it to you. It's a familiar passage. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24 says, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have spent in the deep. I have become, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship in many sleepless nights in starvation and thirst, often hungry in cold without enough clothing. Now, he's not boasting. He's not saying, (laughs) that ain't nothing. You should see what I've done. Um, The context of chapter 11 is he's refuting, he's he's defending his his apostolic authority against false teachers who were telling lies about him. Uh, Probably something along the lines of, well, Paul's just in it for the money or just the glory to make a name for himself. And he's like, let me tell you about my, my, my glory. Let me tell you about you know, what I've been through. And he starts this list of just being beaten and shipwrecked. And, you know, 40 lashes was the limit that they could give you uh, legally um, uh, because apparently it was like a death sentence to give more. And, and he had 39 lashes and not just once, five times 
he was beaten like that. He's like, yeah, that's why I do it. I do it for the, the, the fun, the comfort, the 39 lashes. Um, he had experienced much affliction, but at the same time, there was a lot of comfort given to him by God. And he understood that receiving comfort for help from God had certain consequences or responsibilities that were due. And he was obligated to pass those on to others. So his mathematical equation in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 1 went something like this. God comforts us so that we will comfort others with the same comfort that we receive from God. So it's just kind of this big circle. God comforts me. Lord, why are you so kind to me? Oh, I know. So I can find somebody who also needs your comfort and I could give it to them. Um, so, um, and, and just to get a, an idea in the closer context of, um, of this passage, skip down to verses 8 and 9. Um, Paul had some recent circumstances. Again, we don't know the details surrounding this. We don't know all that was going on. He says in verse, uh, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even to live. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would have confidence, we would not have confidence in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Um, it's obvious that the Corinthians knew about this, they knew the details. How do we know that? Verse 11. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 1 says, you also joining in and helping us through your prayers on our behalf. So they were praying for him through whatever this trial was. We don't, we're not sure, but they knew. And of course, Titus delivered this letter to them, so maybe he gave them more details about it as well. But they were, they were uh, this is what we do know about the trial that they were going through. Uh, according to verse 8, when they looked at their situation that they were in, in their own minds or within ourselves, we had the sentence of death. So they, they thought they were going to die. Whatever the trial they were going through, they didn't see a way out. In fact, um, verse 8, the word despaired means no passage, no exit, no way out. It's to be in a great difficulty. It's not that they were in complete emotional despair. You know, depression, being saddened or sorrowful, can be okay. And, 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 and there, is, there, is, um, there is a certain uh, natural human response of sorrow and depression. But when that depression turns into despair the way we define it is having no hope. Then it becomes sin. And so there is a fine line or a slippery slope between depression and despair. And as Christians, we should never be in despair. And Paul was not emotionally in despair. In fact, we know that because he tells us, um, 2 Corinthians 4.8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing. So he uses the word there to say that emotionally, he's not given up all hope. But when it came to his own life, there was a stage where he gave up hope of him surviving that situation. Not that he wouldn't go to heaven, not that he didn't have hope in God, but he believed his life was over. 
That's what he's saying in this passage. He believed that he had the sentence of death. He was so convinced that, and, and, and so were those who were with him, they didn't see a way out. Um, but they survived. God not only rescued them, but he comforted them, encouraged them. And again, notice the pronouns in verse four. The God who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. Paul understood that stewardship. Um, And he turns that around and he goes to the Corinthians and he says uh, to them, he understood that they needed comfort. Why would the Corinthians need comfort? We talked about this some in the background of the, of the book, but and we'll get more into this in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is, is, I think, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. But part of the background is that a, a, a great number of Corinthians had lost confidence in Paul, and they, they had allowed some false teachers to influence them, and they had either spoken very poorly of him publicly or didn't defend him and question his apostleship, question his authority, question whether he was even working for God or not. And they hurt him. And he responds with that by saying, the comfort that I received through my trial, where I didn't think I'd live, but was rescued, and I'm so grateful to God, I want to pass that on to you somehow. And I want you to feel that same kind of deliverance from your trial. And your trial, I think, in this situation, was that they were feeling terrible about the way they had treated him. And he wanted to deliver them from that. And I think that's fascinating because it's two totally different types of trials. One was a physical trial that threatened his life on earth, not his eternal life, but his life on earth. And the other was a personal conflict where People had spoken, poorly slandered his name, but he wanted them to experience the same kind of comfort he had through his trial. I think it's beautiful. I think it's sweet. And so we see the call of comfort. We see the consequence of comfort. And what I want you to see with the consequence of comfort is that if you've gone through a trial and you've survived and you've been comforted by God, it's for a reason, but that's for a reason for someone else, for you to pass that on. I want to stop if there are any questions, because I, I, I do want to move on, get through the passage, but... Any questions so far? Good. Yes. I think even unbelievers who can comfort us are borrowing that from God's comfort. The fact that they receive grace every day, common grace is a comfort to them. They don't realize it. They don't appreciate it. They're imitating the father of mercies. There is no mercy apart from God. And so, you, you know, an unbeliever can say, I'm showing you mercy. And they can even do something that's kind. Now, what's interesting is that the unbeliever is doing that from a selfish motive. They're not doing it to glorify Christ. Therefore, they're doing it for a, not the right motive, but a sinful motive, whether that's to be to ease their conscience, whether that's to be seen by others as somebody who's, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, kind and kind of brings praise and glory to themselves, 
or whether it's because they're feeling some sort of karma where they, they, they believe that they can outweigh their sins by doing something good. It's all a sinful motive. So actually, the mercy that they show you from God's perspective is actually sin. It's not true mercy. And yet they're imitating the one who gives mercy. And so, the, the, and, and of course, the, the most beautiful story of mercy is Christ on the cross because there is no greater example of how mercy and justice can come together. If God is a God of justice, at the same time he's a God of mercy, how can he be both of those at the same time? And it's by uh, sending a perfect sacrifice in his son, who is God the son, God incarnate, sending a perfect sacrifice where the price necessary to pay for the wrath of God against sin is satisfied. Um, And and so justice is satisfied at the same time mercy is given. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And there is no greater example of that, which which is why it's hard to illustrate that apart from the cross, because anything is, is, is a lesser example. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do not believe, that, I mean, according to this passage, if he really is the father of mercies, and if he really is the God of all comfort, that language is all-inclusive. Yeah, does that help? All right. So we see the call of comfort. We see the consequence of comfort. Let's look at the connection of comfort, verse 5, the connection of comfort. This is interesting because you have to look at this verse a couple of times. It says in verse 5, For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Um, God does not just sit up in heaven waiting to comfort everyone who suffers. There's a connection between the right kind of suffering and his comfort. Not all suffering receives comfort from God. In 1 Peter 2.20, it says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure? And there he's trying to encourage you to have patient endurance. Peter's writing about while you're suffering injustice. But if you're being treated harshly and you've also sinned, there's no credit. God doesn't look along, oh, I'm so happy with this person. And we read earlier from Hebrews 12, where it's uh, verse 11 says, And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. For to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. But sometimes God allows suffering that goes without comfort for the purpose of chastening us, of disciplining us. And so therefore, it's not all suffering that God sends his comfort to. Um in the same way. But there is a special correlation between suffering for the name of Christ and receiving comfort through Christ. So let me try and illustrate this with uh, the story of Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5. Remember in Acts chapter 5, there was the apostles were imprisoned for preaching about Christ. They were arrested and they were uh, threatened and um, they were brought before the religious leaders and they were threatened and, and told that the terrible things would happen to them if you continue to preach. And they warned them not to preach in the name of Christ. And Peter responds beautifully in Acts chapter 5 by saying, we must obey God rather than men. And the leaders didn't know what to do. What do we do? 
And there was one religious leader named Gamaliel, Gamaliel, who was a, 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 a Pharisee. He was a Jewish teacher among teachers. And he came up with this great plan. He said, listen, there have been others who've come up with these fanciful ideas and it's just kind of faded away. So let's not do much to these guys. We don't need to worry about this. If it's just, if it's really not God, it's going to fall away. But if it is from God, we can't oppose it anyways. So there's no point in trying to to do. So let's just deal with it lightly. What's interesting is the way they dealt it lightly was beating them. And, And because we read in Acts 5.40, so they followed his advice, and after calling the apostles in and beating them, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. So that's, that's not dealing with them harshly, according to the Jewish law of the time, all right? Um, but Acts 5.41, right after they were beaten, it says, so they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. In other words, the apostles realized that what they were doing was in the name of Christ. That is, according to his will, that is what Christ would have been doing if he had been there physically. And since Christ wasn't there physically and they were beaten for it, they thought to themselves, hey, Christ, if he were here, he would have been beaten, but we were able to take the beating that was due to him for what he would have been doing. And so we find joy in that, satisfaction, because we've been counted worthy of the name. Um, now, so take a look at the, the verse 5 again of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, because there, is a compar- there are two comparative clauses. So there's a comparison between the first part and the second part. And the comparative clauses have the words like just as, like, and as, so also, right? So verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also, in the same manner, in the same way, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. So there is a correlation, there is a connection between having your focus on doing what Christ would have you do, serving him, being Christ's body here on this earth, and receiving special comfort from God. Now, it doesn't mean that God only comforts those who are in active service to him. He is the God of all comfort. Any comfort, we, whether that comfort be through a, a medical trial or through uh, something you're going through, even, there, even when you go through a discipline, a time of discipline, there is a comfort after that. There, there is a comfort in, in knowing that it was for your benefit, right? So, we can't totally separate comfort, and I don't want to try to give the impression that this verse is saying, hey, you'll get God's comfort if you're really serving Jesus. The whole point of this comparative clause and the focus of verse 5 here is focus on serving Christ. That's what we're here for. Let's glorify Him. And there's a special comfort that correlates itself with that. So we have the call of comfort which is where to praise him, the consequence of comfort, which is an obligation to actually comfort others. This is the connection of comfort, which is a connection between serving Christ wholeheartedly and receiving comfort from God related to that or in a, a similar measure to that. 
And then we have the condition of comfort. The condition of comfort, verses six and seven. It says, but whether we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or whether we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is working in your perseverance in the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. So I call this the condition of comfort because there are two conditional clauses. Don't you love the grammar? It's beautiful there. What's a conditional clause? It's an if-then sentence, right? If you clean your room, then you can have your phone back, right? Those are, that's, that's parenting, isn't it? So but it's, it's a conditional clause. And so in this case, the conditional word is weather, weather. So whether we are afflicted, the result is what? Your comfort and your salvation. Or whether we are comforted, the result is what? Your comfort. So no matter what you're doing, if I, if I experience suffering, it's for your comfort. If I experience comfort, it's for your comfort. That's the condition of comfort. No matter what I experience, it's not for me. It's for you. So uh, we have salvation, hope, and perseverance as the results. I think the word salvation here could refer to salvation from sin but I think that it's rather thinking about a future salvation because he's writing to believers here. And in Scripture, oftentimes when we have the word saved or salvation, it's speaking about past salvation or, you know, it says you have been saved or you, you being saved or you are saved. And so we think about being saved from sin, the gospel that we deserve punishment uh, for our sin, we deserve eternal punishment, yet Christ came down, lived a perfect life, sac- was a sacrifice, a substitute for us who believe in him, who have given our lives, who have repented of our sin, trusted in him, and now we are considered to be righteous, holy from God's perspective. He sees us as, as cleansed, pure, just like Christ, uh, because of the work that Christ has done. We are saved. We are saved from the wrath of God. But Sometimes in Scripture, so the Scripture speaks about salvation as a future salvation. That is the final destination or the final fulfillment of being saved. So, for example, in Romans 13, 11, and do this knowing that the time is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So that's talking about that final salvation, being with God actually experiencing him fully. And so you, in a sense, the scripture teaches that you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. So we have that past, uh, present, and future. And that being saved often results in some sort of, um, some sort of sanctification, sanctification. And we, we think about that sanctification. I just want to talk about that for a minute. When, when the scripture speaks about sanctification as being set apart for God, it speaks about it both positionally and progressively. And positionally, when you are saved, God looks down at you from above and he sees you as perfect, as righteous, as holy, just like Christ. And that's, that's the, you have been sanctified. So you have been made holy. 
and you're not in practice, but from God's perspective as judge, he doesn't see your sin. As a father, he deals with your sin. But somehow as judge, he sees you as righteous as Christ, which is why you can't do anything to gain more of his favor. He can't love you more than he already loves you because he loves you as he loves his son, those of you who are in Christ. And yet, he, as a father who disciplines you, he wants you to grow in sanctification. And so we talk about positional sanctification where God sees you from above through Christ, but we also talk about progressive sanctification, which is that growth that you have in your spiritual life, Philippians 1, 6, being confident is very thing that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it into the day of Jesus Christ. And so you're going to continue to grow. And the difficult part is that you might have two, two people who both, you know, hear the gospel, they, they say a prayer the same day. And so you've got Joe and Fred, and, and Joe and Fred become, you know, professing Christians verbally, and they start going to church. And Joe's life... Uh, he, he kind of he, he starts to grow, and then he has a tough time, and he's, he goes back, he's involved some sin, but he, you know, he grows, and he grows, and then w- at one stage, he really just is low on the sanctification level. He's involved with some other Christians who are telling him lies, like, hey, we're all Christians, so sin doesn't matter, and he gets involved with some really ugly stuff. And, and you, you meet him right, right here at his lowest point. And then he comes out of that. He grows. He realizes he repents of it. He continues to grow. And his life is two steps forward, three steps back, one step forward, one step back, four steps forward. One th- but he grows. At the end of his life, his sanctification level has increased. But it's been up and down. But overall, has increased. He dies straight to heaven, perfection. The other guy, Fred, you look at him on, on this same chart, and... Fred is not really saved. He just professed Christ. So there's no real growth. And he kind of goes up and down from an external perspective. You see him, man, he, he's really involved in, in church. Now he's not. He's, he's, you know, at one stage, man, he's memorizing scripture and he's doing all this kind of stuff. And then he goes down and then he comes up and then he goes down. At the end of his life, you realize though there were lots of ups and downs with external behavior, he flatlined his whole life. He never really grew spiritually and therefore he dies straight to hell. He's never genuine Christian. You meet the two guys on one day when it's one guy's lowest point and the other guy's highest point from an external perspective and you're saying, wow, this guy's doing really well. I'm not so sure about this guy. When in reality, this guy's heart is with the Lord and he is growing and this guy's is not. And so it's hard for us to see it from our perspective when you talk about progressive sanctification, but the Lord knows. And that's one of the joys of comfort is that as you grow through it, you can be comforted that you you do belong to him and he's using it to stretch you and grow you. But the condition of comfort is that your sufferings, um, are meant for the benefit of others. Whether you're suffering or whether you're receiving comfort, it's for others. What, what example can you think of? Is there anyone who can think of an example where somebody went through a difficult time and that was a real comfort to somebody else? Yes. The cross, yeah, yeah. I, I was I was kind of fishing for something uh, 
because I, I, I keep on telling this same example, and there's got to be more. But the, the one example that I that uh, is just poignant in my mind is when I was 27 years old and I was first ministering in Africa, and I totaled my car. I just I, I hit a truck, and it I was fine. The truck was fine, but my car was not. And so I had lost all the money. There was no insurance, so my car is gone. And uh, I went to a missionary potluck that night, and um, this older missionary comes and puts a hand on my shoulder, and he says, and, 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 and I mean, everybody knew that I'd wrecked my car that day. And uh, so I was kind of down. I was kind of depressed. And he goes, yeah, I remember the time when my uh, house, no, sorry, my uh, tractor broke down, my house burned down, and my truck fell in the river. And he just said that that was a tough week. And I'm like, wow. But I was so comforted that here's this guy in his 70s who was there on the mission field still and had gone through all that and shared that with me just with a wink and a smile, just to let me know, hey, you're going to get through this. Um, and, and, and there are trials that you go through which you will be able to share with others and, try and encourage them. Um, so we have, and, and, and that's the condition. The condition is whether you're receiving mercy or comfort or a trial, it's for other people. And then finally, the confidence of comfort, verses 8 through 11. Um, it says in verse, let me start in verse 10, because we, we read verses 8 and 9. Who rescued us from so great a peril and will rescue us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet rescue us. You also joining in and helping us through your prayers on our behalf, so that many thanks may be given on our behalf by many persons for the gracious gift bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So comfort should be given to us. It should build our confidence in God. Conversely, comfort should diminish our self-confidence. Focus in again on the purpose clause here, the so, the so that statement in, um, in verse, um, oh, I have to read it back in verse nine. Let me, let me go back, verse eight and nine. Verse eight, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even to live Asia as Asia Minor. Ephesus was the capital. So that event where they were despairing of their life, they thought they were going to die, happened in Asia Minor, somewhere in Ephesus or near Ephesus. And so, um, but Paul writes about that, and he says in verse nine, indeed we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not have confidence in ourselves. Why did God allow us to believe that we weren't going to make it? so that we would not have confidence in ourselves. Somebody recently sent me a a book. They were trying to be humorous by recommending this book to me, so they sent me a link. The book is by a lady named Carrie Powers, and the title is Self-Love for Kids. A 100 Activities to Help Your Children Develop Self-Love. And uh, you look it up on Amazon. It says, teach your kids to be confident, independent, and happy. And I, I read some of the activities. They're, they're quite interesting. Um, but some of, the, some of this is just a little blurb about the book. This book helps you with self-compassion, self-concept, self-confidence, self-efficacy. That's believing in yourself. I had to look that one up. And then self-esteem, self-image, 
and self-worth. It's a book about self-love, the belief that you're worthy of love, along with actions that demonstrate love and care toward yourself. So love yourself. Other people should love you. That's, that's, I just wonder what Paul would have said about this book. I like, like, Paul, we want to help you with some self-love, um, and you really need more self-confidence. When he clearly says here that trials were there to help him not be confident in his own strength or in, his, in himself. Um, and so when you, when, you, when you look at that, and I, I don't want to totally diminish the motive behind the book, and I don't want to say that, I mean, sometimes people hear criticism against the self-help movement and they think, well, we should all just feel miserable then. There, there's just, just, I'm just trying to think about the terminology and the philosophy behind it. And that is, if you want to help your children, independence from you is not the goal. Dependence on Christ is what you're praying for. It's not that they're self-made or that they love themselves, as that they love Christ and others more than themselves. And, 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 and this idea that we have to, in order to make them happy, it's associated with independence and self-love when the Scripture clearly teaches that true happiness, true peace, true contentment comes from dependence on Christ and loving Him more than anything else. And so, so it's just so counter-cultural. And you have this idea that he was delivered. In verse 11, um, he says, or verse verse 10, the word rescue, who rescued us from so great a peril of death and will rescue us. So he rescued us from dying when we thought we were going to die. And ultimately, he is going to deliver us. Even if we would have died, we would have been delivered from him because we have eternal life. And so there's this hope. Um, He on whom we have set our hope, and yet he will rescue us. And so, and, and, and then there's this idea that they participated in it as well. I love the word through in verse 11. Just take a look at it. You also joining and helping us through your prayers. Prayers are the means by which God uses to help bring about his will. And so they were able to participate in the deliverance of Paul from his trial and his rescue through their prayers. Again, at the end of the verse, he says it also, for the gracious gift bestowed on us, that is deliverance through the prayers of many. God used your prayers. You participated in this. So we have this idea, and I, when I think about confidence, I, 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 the story's been told of a construction worker who was working on a big high-rise building with lots of other construction workers. They were behind on the, on the construction of the building, and so they, um, uh, they had to work 24-hour shifts, so they made eight-hour shifts, but around the clock, and so he was working in the middle of the night on a, on a high exterior wall of this building, high-rise building, way above the city. And uh, uh, the worker was out there, and he slipped, and he fell, and he was just able to grab onto one of the beams. And he's screaming, help me, help me, somebody come. And nobody heard him because the, the, the noise, the grinding, the, all the construction, and, and he couldn't see anything. He looked down, pitch black. And his fingers started to show strain, fingers started, and finally <clears throat> his fingers gave out, he slipped and fell. Three inches. 
because there was scaffolding around the outside of the building that he couldn't see and it wasn't aware of. And so he thought he was going down to... That's a pretty dramatic story, isn't it? So he thought, <laughs> he thought he was going to die, but he was delivered. He was rescued. And I just... I, I like that story because someone who has their confidence in Christ knows that no matter what, he is your deliverer. God delivers. He comforts. Uh, he rescues. And there's nothing in your life that you can experience that goes beyond his ability to rescue. And not only that, you have eternal life. Any questions? We've got a few minutes. Just any questions? All right. We're going to give you a couple of minutes then. Oh, we do, actually, we are at time. That's why there's no questions. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and we thank you, Lord. Uh, we, may your name be exalted and praised because you are the God of all comfort. May we be good stewards of that comfort, Lord, recognizing that there are consequences to receiving your comfort and that we should be comforting others. And may we keep in mind, Lord, that we should focus on living for Christ and the greater comfort that we uh, will experience is related to the greater focus that we have on serving you as Lord and God. And also, Lord, help us to all see that no matter what we experience, whether it be affliction or comfort, that that might be a conduit of comfort for others, that we could bless them and encourage them. And Father, forgive us for the love of self-confidence, and may we trust more in you and place our confidence in you, knowing that you are the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, and that, and that your way is perfect. So we give you all the praise and all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.